Welcome to the Small Business Surgeon Podcast, the show where we dissect the businesses of top producers, examine their growth strategies, and share with you the bare bones of their success. I am your host, Samuel Smith, and I'm glad you're here. Let's operate. Hey guys, what's up? Welcome to this week's episode of the Small Business Surgeon Podcast. And guys, I am genuinely, genuinely excited to bring on today's guest. He is known around the world as the CEO Whisperer, uh, the author of the best-selling book, Second in Command, and the founder of the COO Alliance. Please welcome the show, Cameron Harold. Cameron, welcome. Hey, Samuel. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And thank you so much for being here, man. You've got uh, an amazing story as an entrepreneur and uh, now as the head of the COO Alliance. Just before we jump into to, to the show, just can you tell the audience a little bit about who you are and why I'm actually so excited to interview you today? Sure. Well, I think I'm, I'm kind of one of, of the group that are listening, right? I've, was, I've really always been an entrepreneur. My father groomed my brother and my sister and myself to all be entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. We've all run our own companies for the last 15 to 25 years. I had my first real company when I was 20 years old. I had 12 full-time employees working for me when I was 20. Um, Ran my own business for three years while I was in university. Graduated Mm -hmm. university with no debt. Bought a house the year after I graduated. And really have been building companies ever since. Um, I got well-known for being the second in command of a company called 1-800-GOT-JUNK. I joined that company 22 years ago. I came in as employee number 14 and when I left six and a half years later, we had 3,100 employees system-wide, and we took 1-800-GOT-JUNK from $2 million to $106 million in revenue. Built It was ranked as the number two company in all of Canada to work for. I landed a lot of press, including, including being on Oprah, and just had all the accolades from that. Left there 16 years ago and started working behind the scenes, coaching real companies, typically 50 to 500 employees all over the world. I've been paid to speak on every single continent, including getting paid to speak in Antarctica last year. I've been paid wow. to speak now in 26 countries, adding number 27. I'm getting paid to speak in Egypt next month. And um, yeah, I've got I've written six books. I mean, I started an organization six years ago called the COO Alliance, which is mm. really the only network of its kind in the world for the second in command. Well, Cameron, you know, I wrote out a whole list of questions and bullet points based on your uh, based on your bio and based on the COO mm-hmm. Alliance. Um, that I wanted to ask you and talk about. But man, I just want to ask you right now, what do you want to talk about today? Because that would make my job a lot easier because you just went into so much depth there that I didn't know existed. What do you feel like landing on today? I think understanding your your, you know, your target clients are smaller businesses or early stage businesses um, mm-hmm. or business leaders. So we can talk about you know what makes us effective as leaders. How do we grow our smaller companies? I could go in lots of different directions, but if we want to stay in around that niche, that could work. You're, you're such a, a precious resource to have. Let's let's focus on leadership for a little bit because you grew up in a in a small town in, in Canada, and your dad was an entrepreneur. So, what was mm-hmm. it like? What was it like having a having a father, having a role model that was already in business? What was that like for you growing up? Well, it was a couple things. I mean, I I always remembered seeing him being involved in the business and thinking about his business but he was also very very omnipresent with us as a father and as a family man he Mm -hmm. loved his kids and loved his nieces and nephews and loved time with us embarrassingly so at times you know there were (laughs) often there were parents who who would not show up at the football game or they wouldn't show up at your tennis game my dad was not only there for the games but he was often there for the practices he would, I'd be at, you know, the golf course getting coached by a golf coach as one of the juniors and 
my dad would show up standing there watching us practicing. I'm like, dad, you got to go away. <laughs> like, this is crazy. <laughs> but, um, but it was nice because he showed me the value of time and that being an entrepreneur was having the free time. It was never about having money. We had money. I mean, he, he built a company and it did quite well. And we lived, you know, on the lake and the private club. But we grew mm -hmm. up prior to that, even when he was starting his company, very, very painfully middle class um, right. with, without a lot of money. But he showed me that running his own company wasn't about money. It was about having time to spend with us and do his hobbies and have fun. And the money would follow. And that was just a really powerful lesson for me as an entrepreneur that I carry with me today. Yeah, no doubt. Like it's it's so important, and, and so many of us say, "Well, I don't have time for that." When really, it's just a matter of prioritizing that time and saying, "You know what? This is what's important to me." Um, did he have a big role in you stepping out and starting your own business? Because by by twenty years old, to have twelve employees must be incredibly intimidating. What yeah, was that well, process I'd, like? I'd already had about I'd probably had about fifteen little business ventures by the time I was eighteen years old. So I, okay. I did a talk. If you go to the main TED website, if you go to TED.com and look up my name, you'll see a talk that I did called Let's Raise Kids to Be Entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And I was talking about how I was raised as an entrepreneur. And I think I had about 15 little business ventures that were some of them only a day long. Some of them were three, four, six weeks long. Uh, some of them I did it over multiple summers. But I had all these little business ventures and my dad would talk to me about them, about the successes and the failures and what I'd learned and and he kind of helped reinforce the lessons from every little venture, and I could I no could kidding. you know rattle off a few and, and give you the examples. Yeah, yeah. But... What were, what were a couple of examples that you did as a as a kid? Because you know we're we're talking to guys now that are that are in their twenties, and some of them maybe don't realize that as as teenagers we were trying selling things, we were trying knocking on doors and building our own companies. And so, what, yeah. what were some of the things that you did? So. I'll give you the very first one, and that was uh, selling coat hangers to the dry cleaners. I was seven years old, what? and back in 1972, I found out that because I was at a dry cleaner with my mom, and they would give a recycling fee. If you brought mm -hmm. in coat hangers, they would pay you two cents or one cent per coat hanger. So I started phoning all the dry cleaners in Winnipeg, Canada, with the yellow pages lying on the floor of my bedroom phone and writing down how much they would pay me beside every dry cleaner's name in the phone book. I didn't realize that some of them were like a 30 minute drive from our house, but <laughs> one of the guys, one of the guys said he'd pay me two cents per coat hanger. And I said, no, I want three cents per coat hanger. And he said, I can't give you three cents. That's too much. And I said, how about two and a half cents? And he said, how old are you? And I said, I'm seven. How about two and a half cents? And he said, okay, we'll do two and a half cents. And I said, good. I'll come this afternoon. My mom will drive me. Well, I got off the phone and I turned, my mom was standing there and I started to cry and she said, what's wrong? And I went and I opened up my closet and I had about a thousand coat hangers in my closet. I'd been going door to door in the neighborhood for weeks, collecting them without knowing where I was going to sell them yet, but I knew I could, but I'd been telling her I was out playing with my friends when really I was out kind of running my <laughs> little business. But I learned about negotiations and I learned about persistence and I learned about buying low and selling high. And I learned about cold calling and handling rejection and splitting the difference. And I was seven and those lessons wow. all stick, you know what? And I could do business after business after business that I did. The other thing that my parents were really smart at was they didn't try to take the business and turn it into something else. Like my dad mm. didn't try to take a seven-year-old and get me to open up a metal recycling company. Like he just right, let me recycle right. coat hangers. I probably did it twice and that's it, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. But then I, you know, just move on to the next little business venture. Yeah, it works. But I learned, I learned about kind of the trial by error and I learned about 
figuring it out as you go and not always having the answers for it and just trying and momentum and, you know, again, learning as you go, right? Yeah, yeah. I think far too few people realize just, just how many lessons you have to learn along the way. And um, I think starting at seven, I mean, there's, there's, no better, uh, there's no better way to learn them, is there? Well, one thing my dad taught me as well is I would never be the smartest person in the room. I was never going to be able to figure it all out. I had very, I didn't have very good grades in high school and, and in grade school. So he said, your R&D should stand for rip off and duplicate. You should find really good companies <laughs> out there. You know, so it's like listening to, to your, your podcast, The Small Business Surgeon, you take good ideas from this, just do them. Mm -hmm. Don't, don't overthink them. Don't try to figure it out on your, on your own school really kind of messed us up because it, it taught us that we had to figure it all out for ourselves when we don't most of it has already been figured out for us Man, almost yeah. any problem or any opportunity you have in front of you in business someone else is already doing just do what they're doing yeah yeah I'm, that's so profound and so so few people actually realize that that success leaves clues you can watch mm -hmm. successful people and just follow along with what they do and then i think they call it a steal like an artist um, yeah, to, exactly. Like Picasso used to do, and, and um, <laughs> exactly right. So, back to uh, jumping back over to to uh, leadership, Cameron. What are some of the mistakes you see more inexperienced business owners making in leadership as they start to move into the into the time of their business when they're bringing on employees and starting to to train people to work with them? I guess there's a couple. One is that the leaders spend too much time doing work instead of delegating the work to others. And I'll hear the objection all the time. Well, I can't delegate it to them because they don't know how to do it. Well, then coach them, you know, coach them and train them so they know how to do it so that you can delegate it once and five times and 300 times to them. Mm -hmm. But if we spend all of our time doing work, we don't have time to grow our people. But if we spend all of our time growing our people, we can delegate more to them. And too often entrepreneurs are kind of radically self-reliant where we're just going to work hard and do it ourselves instead of spending the time to coach and to grow the confidence and the skills of all of our direct reports and our freelancers. You know, mm -hmm. you can take freelancers that work for you and you can grow their skills, right? You can take the, you know, anyone who touches any part of your business, you can continually work on growing their skills. I think that's uh, that's important when entrepreneurs start to view this as as how do I positively impact my entire ecosystem as opposed to just how do I help myself. Um, mm -hmm. I I certainly had a switch go off when it it was more about the people that I worked with than it was about me. Do you, do you find that's that's a common thing with entrepreneurs? Um, in terms of more about them, well, yeah, I mean, you have to remain very focused on being customer centric and then being employee centric. Mm -hmm. And if you focus on yourself in terms of how much money I'm going to make or how much free time I have or what I'm building for me, you miss the point of who's doing it for you. You know, the, 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 the really the group to focus on their happiness more than anything is not your customers. It's your employees, right? If you focus on building really, really happy employees, They'll work harder for your customers. They'll try harder for your customers. They'll take care of your customers more, which net net will make your customers really happy. But if you focus on making your customers really happy, you tend to burn out your employees, and they feel like second class citizens. Yeah, yeah, I, I can uh, I can relate to that. Um, as important as it is to uh, to keep the customers happy, I've found that uh, I think it was the book uh, The Dream Manager where I picked it sure, up by Matt, by yeah by Matthew Kelly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, and actually sitting down and asking, hey, what are you here for? What are you trying to achieve? What are your goals? Um, you know, had... we had, 
We had every manager at 1-800-GOT-JUNK read the book, The Dream Manager by Matthew Kelly. I've had all of my coaching clients read it. I've had dinner with him. Um, it's a, it's a, when you care more about your employees' personal dreams and personal goals than you care about the company, they'll go through brick walls for you to build your company. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, there's a funny, funny story about the dream manager. There's a woman in, in the book called Mary Miller, and she runs the janitorial company. And I was sitting at a program called Strategic Coach. I've invested in lots of masterminds to be to, to grow myself. And I mentioned something about the dream manager at the Strategic Coach meeting, and everybody started laughing. And I'm like, what's so funny? It's true. It's about this lady, Mary, that owns a janitorial company. Mm -hmm. And on the other side of the room, this woman puts her hand up and she goes, hi, my name's Mary. And I'm like, <laughs> no way. And it was actually her. The whole book is written about wow. her and her husband. They were sitting in the room with me the whole weekend. Wow, that, that's too cool. Um, yeah. So I, I wanted to ask, like, at, at 35, you were given the opportunity to sit with uh, with one of your friends and, and really build 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Um, and you, you ran everything from, uh, I, uh, except for IT and finance, sorry. And yeah. you took it from a, a $2 million a year company to over a $100 million a year company. Yeah, 106. What was that process like for you walking in there um, with $2 million, uh, $2 million revenue and rolling up your sleeves? What, what was that like? Was it intimidating? No, it wasn't intimidating. The founder was my best friend. Um, we had a bit of an unfair advantage. We had invested in both of us joining the Entrepreneurs Organization, EO. We were mm -hmm. members of the Entrepreneurs Organization in Vancouver, and we were in the same small forum group for four years. So he had watched me build two other companies. I had watched him building his business, and we were best friends. He was my best man at my wedding three months before I joined him to work for him. Oh, man, so, okay. That's so a great story. in the door... Yeah, so walking in the door, I knew everything about him. I knew everything about his business. He knew everything about me. <clears throat> we could very much divide and conquer. <clears throat> it was also the fourth company that I built, like the fourth fourth real business, right? Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> what I identified in the very early days were three things that we had to, to really focus on. The first one was we had to raise our prices because no one was making money. He wasn't, people in the trucks weren't, we couldn't deliver to the customers. So we raised our prices 40%. Secondly, so that was a huge flywheel to build it to be, become the FedEx or Starbucks of junk removal. Yeah. The second was we really had to become a little bit more than a business, a little bit less than a religion. I wanted to get us into the zone of a cult because if we were a strong company culture, we could attract people and we could really get more results from people and we could get press coverage. And then third was how to get press coverage because we had no marketing budget, but we knew if the media would talk about us, if we could get in the magazines and newspapers and there wasn't any online back in the day, but covered on radio and TV, and that we were even on Oprah. That was what was really going to fuel and scale the growth, and that was our three flywheels that we obsessed over. Man, that's uh, that's an incredible way to use uh, PR to build like an organic, organic market. Um, mm -hmm. I still do it today. I've had 21 media interviews just about my book, <laughs> The Second I mean, in Command, that came out 12 days ago. That's that's what this is. That's what this is. Um, and we will uh, absolutely get to your book because, uh, man, books are like the ultimate, ultimate business card. Um, mm. And I, I really do love interviewing authors and, and reading books as well. Um, tell me about the journey of, of writing the book because this is, uh, what, now your sixth book that you've released? Yeah, it's my sixth. Yeah. What? The journeys, the journey has been um, fairly consistent, strangely. my So I've always looked for the shortcuts and for the path of least resistance. I When I wrote my first book 12 years ago, I didn't 
have the skills to be a writer. I was very poor in English class. I wasn't mm -hmm. a good writer. To sit down and type stuff out was hard. My brain works much faster than, than I can, can get it all on paper. But I'm really good as a speaker. So what I did with that book is I walked around and I dictated everything using, in those days, Dragon Dictation. Right. Now you'd use Siri or Potter. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I literally just talked about every chapter of my book. The way that this book worked is I made a table of contents for every chapter of what would be in the book. And then I made a bunch of, of notes of what I would cover from every chapter in the book. So like, as an right. example, I'll just, I'll tell you the, the quick table of contents and I'll give you an example. Yeah, please. So, yeah. The, so I, I, I thought of, you know, in the book, the second command, what is a COO? What's the point of a COO? Why should I hire one? Do I really need one? starting the process of hiring one, how to hire them, how to onboard them, how to work together with them. Now that we've got them, what do we do with them? And then the party's over. Once I've got them and I know it's time for the next one, how do I get rid of them and, and start the process again? Oh, wow. And then I had an appendix with, you know, some other resources I put in there. So then I, I wrote down some, some ideas of, you know, rough ideas. And then I literally grabbed my phone and put a headset on and I went for a walk and I started transcribing it all. Mm-hmm. And then I got a, a, a writer to work with me to help me ask me more questions and pull it out. And we began to frame it all out. And after a few dozen hours of talking it out, it became the first manuscript. And then it goes through a couple rounds of editing. You send it out to 40, 50 of my business people that I know, and they gave me feedback and mm -hmm. we included some of their ideas. I also included a lot of ideas from our COO Alliance members. And then a lot of my guests from our second in command podcast, where I interview the second in commands of big brands like Shopify and Bumble and Tinder, and I interview all these great COOs, um, you pull all their content together as well. And mm -hmm. that just became that became the book. Man, I mean, what a way to start to compile resources. I mean, there might be a little mm. bit of, uh, I might be emulating you a little bit with my own podcast so I can get uh, the opinions right. the opinions of my guests. But that's that's why I do it. It allows me to uh, to learn this level of thing. Now, so uh, going back to that list that you reeled off uh, that you were making. Well, by the way, it also, that goes back to a very early stage lesson that I had as well was leverage. Mm -hmm. How can I actually do something and get paid for two things you know so i remember i used to go to all the ponds at our golf course and collect all the golf balls and then i would organize them by like crappy golf balls to practice with and pretty good golf balls and then the best one or two brands that people mm -hmm. would pay a premium for and then I, I would sit on the golf course and sell them to golfers when they were walking past but there was one hole on our golf course that had a really big hill so I sat there to sell the golf balls to them. And they also would pay me to take their golf bags up and down the hill. So I found leverage. <laughs> so the reason we do a podcast is it gives us leverage, right? We can use yeah. the episodes on our YouTube. We can stream it. We can, you know, wherever. By the way, are we recording this one? Because there's no record showing. Uh, yes, sir. I use uh, I use a screen recording and audio recording software. It lets me break out different channels. So everybody's got their own uh... Beautiful. audio. <laughs> I learned that one years ago. I was interviewing somebody on our second in command podcast. 41 minutes in, I was like, you're kidding. I have not pressed record. Yeah, this is a, a uh, th that's why I have the little uh, the little ritual there before we go on air and I'll clap and do all that. It's, uh, yes, to make right. sure because uh, I've had, uh, I've had self admitted uh, technical difficulties, let's say in the past. So now I always, uh, I always make sure to do that little ritual and make sure everything's recording. But yes, uh, this too will go in the podcast. I don't think we'll, we'll, we'll even edit that bit out. Um, Perfect. But let's talk about chief operating officers. Um, mm -hmm. And I know they often get uh, hit with the term uh, integrators. Uh, just yeah. 
what are they and why are they so important for when an entrepreneur is trying to scale and grow a company? Great. And that's exactly why I called the book The Second in Command, because the second in command can have a number of different titles. It could be a COO, it could be an integrator, it could be a VP operations, director operations, general manager, maybe a president. Mm -hmm. um, maybe in the early, early days, maybe your second in command is your EA. Right, but at the end right. of the day, you need someone who is your kind of de facto yin and yang, somebody who's your real partner in helping you scale this thing out. Um, and it becomes important to understand what title to put on the person based on their roles and responsibilities, their level of strategic insights they have and how much you're willing to pay them. Right. But that, I also talk about the, the idea of the visionary and integrator that was popularized in the book Traction and then in um, Rocket Fuel by, mm -hmm. by Gino Wickman and Mark Winters. And, and where that integrator role starts to break down as a company gets past about 50 employees, where the, the kind of types of roles and responsibilities change. And it's very interesting how I was for six and a half years, the perfect COO for 1-800-GOT-JUNK, but I would have been horrible for the stage that a close friend of mine has been COO for there now. He's taken them from about 100 million to 450 million. He was perfect in that stage and would have been horrible in the first six years. Right. So there's right. also a stage of, of growth of a business that you need to fit as well as the skill set. Yeah. And so at, at what point would you say like an entrepreneur is ready to look at hiring their first like operations manager kind of type role? Yeah, it really comes along when the COO recognizes or should recognize that they're so busy doing work that they're not spending any time on strategy, on culture, or on growing people, or removing obstacles, or getting mm -hmm. alignment, right? The COO's, CEO's job really is not to do work. It's to get work done by others. Right, so that's, right. that's when you start to recognize that you really are breaking down because you might have a good solid management team, but if you're not spending time with them, growing them, removing obstacles, helping with communication, collaboration, you know, getting in good debates, um, brainstorming on areas of the business, thinking strategically, then you're really missing the growth opportunities for the company. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, man, with the COO Alliance, you have kind of a, a safe space, if you like, or a, a training platform for COOs and for entrepreneurs looking to improve. What was it like starting that and uh, figuring out the need for it? Because you were, you were into the uh, EO system, weren't you? Yeah, I was an EO member for years, and I've also been a member of the Genius Network for seven years, and Strategic Coach for a bunch, and Baby Bathwater, and you know, I've gone to <laughs> the main five-day TED conference for nine years. I've I've invested a lot in my growth and my network for sure. Mm -hmm. I recognized I was listening to a few of my coaching clients. I was coaching three by the time I was coaching ten clients, but three of them had seconding commands that I was coaching behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. And one of my COOs said, "Hey, can we get a few of the COOs together that you coach, and and maybe sit together and hang out together for a weekend and brainstorm and mastermind together?" I'm like, "Well, I don't really coach COOs." And Zach said, "Well, you're coaching Matt from Acceleration Partners, and you're coaching Zach mm -hmm. from um, Book in a Box." I'm like, "How do you know them?" He goes, well, you would talk about their companies. And I looked them up and realized they had COOs too. And I'm like, okay, I guess we'll try to get a few of you together. <laughs> and I right. put up a landing page and said, we always going to get, you know, 10 COOs together. And the price was 6,700 bucks. And uh, 25 hours later, 10 people had signed up and we had our first event going. Wow, that's super strong. Um, you know, I really wanted to talk about uh, mentorship and, and masterminds. You say you've invested a lot over the years in masterminds. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about 
the benefits of joining a mastermind and what some things that entrepreneurs could expect to uh, to receive when they join one. Yeah, it's interesting. I had um, dinner years ago with um, somebody named Eben Pagan, and this was probably 15 years ago. Eben is a, a big online internet marketer, uh, one of the very early, early stage internet marketers. And he and I were talking about where we invested, and I was talking about real estate and stocks and blah, blah, blah. And I said, what about you? And he said, I'm investing in masterminds. I'm like, what's a mastermind? And <laughs> he explained, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm an EO. And he goes, no, it's more than that. And so his idea was if you spend $10,000 to go to a mastermind group for a year or to a conference, mm -hmm. I spend 25000 to join the Genius Network seven years in a row, you're going to get a 10x return on that $25,000 investment. So as an example, from joining the Genius Network, sitting in that room, I learned more about internet marketing, I landed coaching clients, I got a partner for my book, you know, Hal Elrod mm -hmm. came up to me and asked me to co author the Miracle Morning for Entrepreneurs. I found my book publisher book in a box, which is now called scribe. Mm -hmm. I got the idea for the COO Alliance and, and how to actually build it out and frame it. Um, so I can quantify, you know, the dollar figures that that group has given me. Yeah. And, and then just from even getting clients from it, from either word of mouth or referrals or people that are in the room without being the sleazy salesman, right. Without trying to sell them, right, um, right. I can quantify again. So easily, you know, I've gotten a couple million dollars worth of business out of being in a group that I paid $175,000 for for seven years. I mean, and it makes, I can, makes sense. Yeah, I can. And I can replicate that time and time again, right? I went went to uh, go hiking in Bhutan back in October. And just from and I paid $10,000 to be at the event. And then, um, you know, plus my travel costs. But then I landed a $9,000 client. And then they bought seats in my course. And I've now got a full return on my investment. And I got to go spend time hiking in Bhutan. And, and I was, got the yeah, tax write-off, right? And, <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. You yeah. get the tax write-off and I got inspired and I met more connections, you know, and then I pulled the ideas for my April in-person CEO Alliance event all came off of that event. So there's all these spin-off benefits that come as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm a huge, huge proponent of masterminds. Um, I pay a, a ridiculous amount of money for them, but I receive a ridiculous amount of value. So, I mean, it's mm -hmm. again, it's it's a balance but when you try and tell somebody that no $25,000 a year is is really a, a really great deal for the price of admission into the the room sometimes they kind of miss the point and they just focus on the fact that it's $25,000 yeah my my decision point has to come in three ways i call it the trifecta mm -hmm. so i'll spend the money to join the group or to attend if these three things happen number 1 if i can get ideas on how to grow my company or my clients companies Mm -hmm. Number two, if I can spend time with current clients. And number three, if I can get, gain clients without being the sleazy salesperson, then it's like, yes, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, no doubt. So I'm, I'm going to one tomorrow, flying off to San Diego for three days, and I'll be at an event there where I know I'm going to get tons of ideas. I know I'm going to be in a cool group. It's small enough, only about 50 CEOs are going to be there. I'm going to be one of the thought leaders that's in the room as well. They're already asking me to run a round table at lunch and I get to, to hang out and be inspired and learn. And then I know I've got two clients there who have purchased seats in the course. So those kinds of things allow you to say hell yes to it. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like a room. I and again, to, uh, I but if I was so busy running my business and I was so busy working in the business, I wouldn't have time for those activities. That's another reason why you want that COO is to free you up to work on the business, right? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, the things you learn in those rooms and the relationships you, you make in those rooms are far more valuable than the price of entry to the room. 
Yeah, they're quantum leaps. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. No doubt. So do you have any particular mentors now? Because, you know, as you grow, surely it must be hard to find more technically advanced people that can teach you things. Are, are you, you have any current mentors that you use? I don't have a, I have a direct mentor, but I just plug myself into a lot of these communities constantly. So as an example, in 2023, I'm attending an event with entrepreneurs, 150 entrepreneurs in Croatia. I'm wow. going to this event next week uh, with 50 entrepreneurs in San Diego. Mm -hmm. I'm going to an event with 20 entrepreneurs in Uganda in June. I'm going to the main five-day TED conference in Vancouver, which I'll be the dumbest person out of the 1800 there for the five days. <laughs> and, then I'll, and then I'm going to the annual Genius Network event with 330 entrepreneurs. So those attending those five events, I'm surrounded by potential mentors. And for me, what I do whenever I go to an event is I think about what are two or three things that I want to get better at. Mm -hmm. So I can be finding the people that are good at that and asking them questions. And then I just try to reciprocate. I try to be able to help them with what they're working on, not in a quid pro quo kind of way or not in a way that they owe me something, but just I'm there to help and they'll help me. That's where the growth really comes from. So no, I think I get more out of those kinds of relationships than a one-on-one -on -one mentoring situation. Yeah, yeah. And and those are the kind of relationships where where you... If you bring value to the table and you give value, you're you're much more likely to find that people are willing to give value back to you you know so i i, I well, love and, masterminds and, and i'm and i'm i'm committed right i am going to five of these events yeah. it's not like i'm just going to one like i am going to five events you know and there'll yeah. probably be more that i just can't think of oh i i love them i i make it a point to to go to them I'm, i would love to put on my own mastermind um you know just uh there's a lot of other stuff that that takes precedent especially running a podcast as you well know so um mm -hmm. <laughs> so when you came up, like the internet was just kind of getting started and just getting going, and you know, we we came both from you know the old school to the new school. What do you think is different for young entrepreneurs now, and the amount of opportunity they've got moving forward? Do you think there's been a better time to be an entrepreneur? No, it's an amazing time because you have access to all of the information. You have tools that are available at your fingertips that are free or very very cost effective. You can hire people from anywhere who can work on their unique ability and work five hours a week or 50 hours a week or, you know, th that you don't need to be hiring full-time people who have to live within 30 minutes of your office. And yeah. <laughs> you don't need to have offices. You don't need that extra overhead. No, I think it's, it's extraordinary. You, you know, you can replicate. The key is to look for opportunities for automations and for optimization so that you don't just waste time and working on the right thing. You really have to be clear on your vision of where you're taking your business and you know, where's the revenue going to come from and, and where your clients going to come from. And if you're clear on that vision, then all of those resources can start lining up behind you for sure. Yeah. So if you had some advice for a younger guy just starting out in business, maybe he's just got uh, dumped right in the middle of the street. What are some of the first things that you do? You mentioned um, knowing what he wanted to do. You mentioned like, you know, having a uh, having a goal set out. Can you speak on that mm. at all? Yeah, so, so the, the concept of the vivid vision is one concept that I talk about. The other, before I forget, is a course that I just launched called Invest in Your Leaders. The thing I would be telling anyone right now who's trying to build a business or trying to grow themselves is grow your core skills, not at the functional area that you're good at. Don't get better at podcasting. Don't get better at marketing. That's fine. Work on that. But get better at leadership. Get better at delegation, time management, project management, coaching, one-on-one -on -one coaching meetings, classroom teaching you know, email management, really get better at the, the skills to actually effectively lead and grow people. And that mm -hmm. will propel your business. That's 
first what I would be telling everybody to focus on. Yeah. So I, I launched yeah. a course called Invest in Your Leaders just to kind of give that content away. The so, vivid vision idea is a concept that I learned 25 years ago from an Olympic coach mm -hmm. and that it still is very powerful. I wrote a book called Vivid Vision. And the idea in there is to describe what your company looks like, acts like, and feels like three years from today. Mm -hmm. So lean out to December 31st, 2025, and describe every single aspect of your company as if it's already completed. Describe what your meeting rhythms are like. Describe what your customers are writing about you online. Describe your relationship with your employees. Describe your leadership team. Describe your marketing and your branding and the media. Describe what the media is writing about you. Talk about your company culture and your office. Talk about you know how you're recruiting people. Describe your company. Mm -hmm. And what happens when you end up with this four or five page vivid description of what your company looks like, acts like, and feels like, every sentence becomes a finished state that you can try to reverse engineer. You can try to yeah. figure out how do I make that sentence come true? And then almost like building a home, you build the foundational parts of the home first, and then you put up the walls and you put in the electrical and the plumbing, right? There's an order of operations yeah, to building yeah. a house. There's also an order of operations to building your company. Mm -hmm. Where so many companies waste time and money is they spend time in, uh, working on the wrong things instead of working on the core things that will actually help you scale, okay. right? So often they're, they're, they're so busy working on the beautiful cabinets or putting the wolf stove in or but we don't even have the walls up yet. So now we got to rip out the stove to put <laughs> right. in the walls. Mm -hmm. it, so it's it's working it that way. And that's what I've, but I, I take that for granted because I've done it for so many years. So go a little bit deeper for the listeners and talk about the foundation and the walls for, for the process for establishing their business. Yeah, I think of every business like a jigsaw puzzle. Mm -hmm. And the the picture on the front of the box, right? If your mom gave you a jigsaw puzzle to do with 500 pieces, you have to look at the picture on the front of the box first to know what we're building, right? right so that's the right. vivid vision. Mm -hmm. That's the vivid vision. If you don't have one, then no employee in your company is clear on why we're doing what we're doing or what to say yes to, or they don't have any level of intuition because they just don't have the clarity and you're the only one that sees it. So that's first. Then you look for the four corners of the jigsaw puzzle, right? You look for the four corner pieces. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, the four corners are your core purpose, mm -hmm. your core values, mm -hmm. your BHAG, the big, hairy, audacious goal, and the one-year plan to make your vivid vision come true. Not right. a three-year plan, five-year plan, because that's so far out. Yeah, Those are the four corners. And then the four sides of your jigsaw puzzle, the side pieces are all the people systems, right? Mm -hmm. Recruiting, interviewing, selection, hiring, onboarding, training, leadership development, and the offboarding of people. Mm -hmm. And then the strategy component. So, you know, the creative meetings, the strategy meetings, the mentoring, the you know, cross-pollination of ideas from other business, other other businesses. Um, then it's all your meeting rhythms is the next side. So that's right. your annual planning, quarterly, one-on-one -on -one planning, financial meetings, et cetera. The fourth side is your financial systems. And then the big shiny objects, all the cool pieces in the middle are all the culture that emerges from all those systems. And that's how I visualize every business. Man, what an awesome, awesome overview. And that all starts with the the vivid vision, which is essentially the front of the jigsaw box, right? Right. And if you, if you don't, like, you know, the Cheshire cat from Alice in Wonderland said, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. So you need to have a vision of where we're going. Otherwise, every idea seems like a good idea, right? You can get so distracted today with some influencer telling you this or somebody you saw online doing that or a book you read doing this or a conference when you do somebody doing that. But if it's not aligned with the direction of where you're going, say no to it right. or say hell yes to it because it is so aligned, right? That's the first. And then the other part, Thomas Edison said, vision without execution is hallucination. 
So that's to have too. a vivid vision is only one thing, but you need to actually get it done. And that's often where the integrator or the second in command is so powerful because they can help the entrepreneur make their ideas a reality. Yeah, it's, it's so true. It's, uh, it's absolutely true. So before we get off here, Cameron, can you maybe tell us one time in business where things didn't go so right and maybe a course of action that you could take to uh, that you yeah. took to correct it. Well, we almost bankrupted 1-800-GOT-JUNK in the 60 to $100 million range where we oh, were wow. very profitable, had lots of cash coming in, but we didn't understand how to leverage the balance sheet. And we were, we were building the business from cash flow, which mm -hmm. is what you do in the early days, right? right I got cash, right. I'll spend it. You can make decisions on intuition. Oh, we're out of money. Great, I'll max out my credit card for a month. I'm back in business. Mm -hmm. As the business scales, cash becomes your oxygen. And we were running out of cash. We didn't know it. What we, what we learned later was that we had a very quiet, amiable head of finance. Mm -hmm. He was from Indonesia. He was very kind of subservient. He, and Brian, the founder, and myself were very dominant. Type A, we knew where we were going. We got all this traction. We got all these ideas. We're clear. Let's keep keep marching. And he kept saying to us, are you sure we're not going too fast? Do you think we're going too quickly? Are you okay with this speed? And we were like, yes, yes. We didn't listen to him. And then mm. the big lesson when we almost bankrupted the company was listen to your employees. And if you're not willing to listen to them, hire people you're willing to listen to. Wow. Because wow. Yeah. we then brought in a head of finance that we were willing to listen to. And she pulled the fire alarm one day and said, we're almost out of fucking cash. <laughs> and we started doing, we were then doing daily cash flow projections. Wow. Like unbelievable how we had to turn this thing around. And we were almost at the hundred million dollar mark. So do you mind me asking how, how you, how did you fix that? Huh. Uh, we fired 20 people. We called all of our vendors and told them we weren't paying them for 90 days. And at 90 days, we'd pay 50% of the invoices for the next 90 days. And then we would catch up. The ones who yelled at us, we told them we weren't even going to be paying them. They were going to have to be at the bottom of the line unless they were nice to us. We focused on um, our gross margins. We increased prices. We cut our cut our costs. We got back to the basics with some of our marketing. We said no to opportunities internally. Um, we just, you know, how to get more shit done with less people faster. We dug in. Dude, that, that's exactly what you did. You Brian dug, had to you go dug in. Like, the, the founder, Brian, had to go to his mom and raise $420,000 from her one night just to meet payroll the next day. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, nobody ever tells that um, when, when you're at the Chamber of Commerce meetings and everything else. Nobody ever says anything like that. But to hear somebody with you know, a scale in towards a $100 million company actually make it teeter like that, it, you know, oh, I think I've it... It makes I've all of us dozens, feel more human. <laughs> yeah, I've got dozens of those examples. I could write books on all of our screw-ups and what we learned from them as equally as I could write on all of our successes and how we did it. Like yeah. there's, there's so many of those lessons from the edge. or But the key is to, we were really good at blaming ourselves for the problem and not blaming external resources. So we were mm -hmm. very good at introspection and not externalizing. And so often entrepreneurs will externalize. They'll blame the market. They'll blame a supplier. They'll blame a an employee, they'll blame whatever. Well, what was our contribution to that? Like we picked them, we right, picked the employee, right. we picked the subject, right? So we, we were very good at blaming ourselves. And then secondly, we were really good at blaming the missing system or the broken system mm -hmm. and not an employee. 
So if something went wrong, we tried to figure out what system was missing that allowed that to go wrong so we could fix the system versus saying, well, they screwed up. Right, right. People don't, people don't show up at work trying to screw up. They're trying their best. They're either not aligned with vision. They're not aligned with goals. They don't have the training. You know, we delegated something without knowing if they had the skill set or the vision for what we wanted back. So by constantly re-examining our contribution to the problem, by constantly re-examining what, what the missing system was or broken system was, that allowed us to learn from all of our mistakes. Yeah, yeah. And I, I find that like when everything's documented and everything's systematized, systematized and there are procedures, I find I get far much you know, better results than, than without. It just sometimes it, it takes the break-in of a system to realize it doesn't quite work properly. Well, and you have to hire people that like to follow the systems, right? So we hired, so <laughs> yes. what we did is we looked, so we, so here's the underlying system that we found. Mm -hmm. We hired for something called interdependence. So interdependence was that if a system existed, they would be dependent on and follow the system. Mm -hmm. If the system did not exist, they wouldn't freeze up and panic. They would be entrepreneurial enough to figure one out and put a system in place. Right. So it was that level of just kind of bobbing and weaving and best practicing and bobbing and weaving and best practicing because you don't want somebody who is like a pilot or an engineer who can only do it this way because that's the way it has to be. Mm -hmm. Well, fuck, if something changes, you better bob and weave a little bit, right? And if yeah. it freeze up. <laughs> so, yeah, so systems are critical, but so is the ability to actually bob and weave and create the systems as you have to figure it out. It's like the pilot from US Airways that had to just figure out how do I land on the Hudson River? There wasn't a system for that, and pilots have to follow the playbooks. Yeah. He was entrepreneurial enough to go, I'll figure it out. I'll just figure out how to land in, on a river. I like that. That's a good way to look at it. It really is. And it's it's always a bonus as an entrepreneur when you can find, um, what do they call them? Intrapreneurs. You can find people that have the ability to think around problems that still want to come and work with you and building sure. your company. And and I think those, those that intrapreneurial skill, right? So the key is to define what intrapreneurial is, right? You don't want a real entrepreneur because then at some point they're going to quit and leave. Yeah, so you need yeah. to have somebody who doesn't have the risk tolerance. Somebody who's a little bit more risk adverse is good mm -hmm. because if they're too entrepreneurial, they will actually leave and go do their yeah. own thing. Yeah. But you also don't want somebody who's so entrepreneurial that they'll make it up on their own or they'll try to do it their own way because sometimes there is a better way. We figured that out in the franchising world <clears throat> that entrepreneurs make terrible franchisees. Oh, I bet. But, yeah. But entrepreneurial people make great franchisees. Wow. Yeah, I think I'd make a terrible franchisee. So I want to be pulling out things, seeing if I can fix them and change them and make them better. Right. And trust me, the franchisor, if there's a better way, they're going to let you know because they're going to want you following the better way anyway. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. So maybe no franchises for me. Huh? <laughs> Cameron, it's about time we got to the end of this interview, sir. I want to ask you one more time about your new book, second in command uh, tell me just again mm. a real quick breakdown of what it is and uh, where everybody can get a hold of a copy yeah it's really how to unleash the power of your coo <clears throat> it's all about understanding really what a coo is when would be the right time to bring them into my company how do i go out and find one recruit them interview them and bring them in and then build that really strong relationship with them you know in in the the personal world it's like how do you find a spouse what am i looking for in a spouse how do I understand myself well enough to find a spouse that would like me? Where do I find a spouse that has all these traits? How do I start dating them? How do I get to know them? Once right. I'm married, how do I build a relationship with them? Right. It's it's the very same journey. Mm -hmm. 
so a very you, similar journey. You actually have them craft a, uh, the ideal COO and then write out a list of exactly what they're looking for then. Before they write the ideal, ideal COO, though, they have to write out who they are. Oh, yeah. They really have mm -hmm. to understand themselves as the entrepreneur. What are their weaknesses? What are their pain points? What are the areas of business that drain them? What are the areas of business that they love or that they're really great at? And then how do you find the yin and yang to that? How do you find the person that matches all of those? It's a very tough role to find because it is such a pure match to the entrepreneur or the CEO as well. Man, it, it really is. But man, it's so worth it when you find the right one and everything just clicks. For sure. Big uh, time. Cameron, where can we find a copy of your book, sir? Yeah, all of my books are available on Amazon, Audible, and iTunes. Uh, they also definitely want to check out the Invest in Your Leaders course. And then for any companies that are greater than 5 million or greater, check out the COO Alliance and plug your second in command into that community for sure. I would absolutely recommend that. Cameron, it's been an absolute pleasure to interview you today. So thank you for taking the time out to uh, to hang out with us, man. It's been a real, real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Samuel. I appreciate it. Guys, that was Cameron Herald, the founder and head of COO Alliance and the author of the new book, Second in Command. You'll do me a favor, run over into the show notes, click on his links and go show him some love. And as always, you can find us at Small Business Surgeon on all major platforms. It'll be good. And I will see you later this week for Friday Fire. This has been the Small Business Surgeon Podcast. If you've made it this far, you clearly like it. So go on iTunes and leave us a five-star review. This helps people find the show and spread the good word. Share with friends and follow us at Small Business Surgeon on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you for your follow-up next week.